Welcome to the Vandenack Weaver Trulson Legal Visionaries Podcast, brought to you by Interactive Legal. Here's your host, Mary Vandenack. Welcome to today's episode of Vandenack Weaver Trulson Law Visionaries, a weekly podcast discussing updated legal news as well as evolving methods of providing legal service. I am Mary Vandenack, CEO, founding and managing partner at Vandenack Weaver Trulson LLC. I will be your host as we talk to experts around the country about closely held businesses, taxes, trusts, estates, legal technology, asset protection, law firm leadership, and well-being. On today's episode, my guest is Jonathan Gottman, an attorney with Nelson Mullins in Naples, Florida. Jonathan has extensive experience in designing asset protection structures and related tax strategies. Jonathan has been involved in writing and advising on numerous legislative acts in his areas of expertise, and he regularly presents and writes on the topics of the areas in which he practices. Today, we're going to discuss income tax planning strategies in conjunction with asset protection. Jonathan, I want to thank you for being here. I do want to thank our sponsors, Interactive Legal and Carson Private Client. And here's a message from Interactive Legal. There's always a resistance to change, particularly with attorneys. Attorneys like to look back at what's worked in the past, and that makes a lot of sense. But when you realize that with a good automated drafting system, you can do a better job for your clients, deliver documents on a more timely fashion, in a more consistent and in a more costly manner. If you're not a subscriber to Interactive Legal, I urge you to go to interactivelegal.com and click on Request a Demo. And you'll be contacted about having a demonstration of interactive legal for you, which can be done right over the Internet. Don't have to leave your office. No salesperson will call. We can arrange it at a time inconvenient for you. So please go to interactivelegal.com and click on Request a Demo. Welcome, Jonathan. Thanks, Mary. It's a pleasure to be here and talk to your listeners about combining income tax planning strategies with asset protection planning strategies. Even nicer with my dog barking in the background. (laughs) (laughs) So do you want to tell us, and the dog can certainly add bullet points to the important (laughs) points to help listeners know this is what you really need to hear. But can you tell us what you mean by income tax planning strategies? Sure, absolutely. Strategies that are designed to mitigate the effect of income tax that would otherwise be imposed On capital gain, for instance, tax that is imposed when you sell a family business or highly appreciated stock in a startup company that has matured wage income uh, for high income wage earners, such as corporate executives, medical professionals, engineers, scientists, and active business generated, active business income generated by successful businesses. So basically, people who are doing really well generating income in some way. And what you are really good at is designing some tax strategies to help them pay a little less in taxes. Absolutely. Can you you tell us a little bit about some of the strategies? Sure. I wish we had more time to go into great detail today. However, uh, I I know that I know our time is quite limited. So uh, what I'll do is try to examine these strategies solely from the proverbial 30,000 foot level. Um, I always ask our clients a few preliminary questions that are always important. Uh, when planning in this area, because ultimately uh, our clients are all a little bit different and strategies uh, strategies that are appropriate for one client may not be appropriate for another client. So the following issues are, are critical for our clients to consider. So the first question I always ask is, what is your risk tolerance? Because as I describe it, we have a, uh, 
uh, a scale of one to 10, uh, with one being no risk because it's black and white, and then 10 being highly risky. Uh, and I always tell people, you know, as a, as a qualified practitioner that's been doing this for over 30 years now, I never, I never venture above that five risk factor. I think everything in from, from six to 10 has the, the potential to get you into, um, to get you into serious trouble, uh, whether it's handcuffs or, or, or other things. And, and you might read about some of these things in, you know, in magazines on certain planes or, you know, or, or on the internet. And that's probably stuff that you, you almost always want to stay away from. On the other hand, there's a lot of good stuff from one to five. And just because the service might read a, a particular statute in a different manner doesn't mean that the service's position is correct. You know, Congress oftentimes gets things wrong and the tax writers get, get, things, get things wrong or overlook certain things. And, you know, it's our, our, it, it's our um, uh, duty as tax planners to, you know, to bring those opportunities to our clients. That's why we went to tax school to learn the tax code, to help people plan around, uh, you know, to help people plan in the most efficient manner possible. So risk tolerance is very important and I always need to assess that. And some people tell me, look, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a one and I know where to stay. And some people tell me I'm a three and some people say high risk. You know, what, what I found in getting into this over the years though, is the, the, the more you go down the, 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 the trail of talking about different types of tax planning opportunities, most people end up uh, be, between the three and the four and, and, and not towards the five. And I think that's important to understand in the process. However, you know, I, I almost always start, you know, and uh, I, 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 I explain certain strategies that could come on that five, on 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 the uh, on the five uh, star on the, on the scale and uh, you know and oftentimes it's just uh, you know I, I found it's just been a little bit too much for the clients. Uh, the other thing is I think is just critical in planning in this area and this comes from a lot of experience is always my always ask my clients how much money do you need to live on um, uh, and uh, and support your lifestyle and that of your family and how much money do you put away uh, for the future? What, what savings do you put away? Because oftentimes these strategies that we use, you know, they, 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 they put money into particular pockets. They, they, you know, and oftentimes, don't get me wrong, they, they can be extremely flexible as well, but you're tying up money in a certain format. And, 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 and oftentimes you're going to have situations where it's, uh, you know, it, 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 it's going to be difficult to use that money for, for, you know, for, for, for different types of investments and things like that. So you have to be careful about that uh, and, and, and find the right strategy and the right fit for clients so, they, that, so that you don't tie up their money in such a way that they can't use it to build, you know, to build a greater, uh, to build a greater estate. So I've always found that to be extremely important. And, and again, it doesn't mean that we can't accommodate a client, but we, but, but if I know what that, um, if I know, um, you know, what that nut is that they need to live off of, that makes my life a lot easier and it gives me a lot more playroom. Um, and I'm not gonna do anything to affect that, you know, the, the, the cost of their living. Uh, the other thing I ask them as well is, what do you plan to invest in the future? And do you need direct control to accomplish your, your investment and business objectives? I think that's critical as well. And, you know, so any strategies we, we design here have to be destroyed, you know, designed with, with, with that in mind and what the clients do in their business and, you know, and, how, and how, they, how they continue to build their wealth. Because they want they they want to have the ability to access those resources after you've set a plan in motion. And the other thing that, that's critically important in this situation is where you plan to live, where you plan to reside. Um, there's certain places that you can uh, live that have uh, you know that are that are more beneficial from a tax perspective. So that's very important. And that is true, both tax and asset protection. Just by way of curiosity, right? So you can look at both of those issues. 
when you're yeah, deciding. Yeah, and, and, and oftentimes, um, you know, we're, we're not going to talk. We'll probably talk about it in another uh, in another podcast. But oftentimes, the strategies that we employ here mix in very well, or or fit on top of, or overlap with 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 uh, with good strong asset protection strategies. Sometimes the the uh, the strategies we use actually produce very good uh, asset protection benefits on their own. So can you tell us about some of the strategies? Sure, sure. So some of the strategies uh, can be the proverbial, what I, what I refer to as low-hanging fruit. Um, you know, that, that is optimizing ERISA-based retirement plans and executive compensation benefits. Uh, are you optimizing your charitable gifts? And how are you making those charitable gifts when you're optimizing, because oftentimes there's a lot of different strategies that we can employ. And, and again, I, I, I look at this as the low hanging fruit, your 401k, your, uh, your defined benefit plan, uh, different forms of executive compensation plans that are out there. There's some very good strategies out there as well. And then, you know, uh, you know uh, uh, optimizing the format of your charitable gifts, there's all sorts of foot interest trust that you can use, you, uh, you know, depending upon uh, uh, the strategies that you're using, uh, you know, how much of that can you apply against your, uh, against your adjusted gross income for the year and, uh, and things like that. So, you know, we're, we're attending, especially if, if, uh, if you have a client that has uh, significant charitable intent, you know, I think, I think that becomes an important focus on, on annual income tax planning. So your low-hanging fruit are kind of really things that everybody should be thinking about or sort of foundation, do you make sure you're looking at these, but they're kind of low-hanging fruit in the sense that um, you are going to get, like with the ERISA plans, you only have so much, and even the gifting strategies, you're actually giving it entirely away, and you're limited based on income. So they are kind of what we call plain vanilla. So do you have some more exciting strategies, Jonathan? Yeah, absolutely, and you're and you're right to point that out too. With ERISA-based plans, you're 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 always limited as to how much you can get in there, the types of investments you can use. Although there is some more flexibility there, but uh, but yeah, that 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 there it, it really does cap itself, uh, particularly with clients in this particular space looking for quality income tax planning strategies. Yeah, but it it really does get a lot more exciting from here. So, for instance, if I have a client uh, that has uh, a, a significant amount of active business income, um, we, might, uh, we might introduce the concept of commercial enterprise risk insurance. This is going to sound somewhat similar, especially if there's some CFOs listening to us today or, or some clients that may have heard about its distant cousin, I'll call it captive insurance. Um, captive insurance, uh, this is not, ca- not captive insurance again, NOT, not captive insurance. So that's very important to understand. There's some quality captive insurance plans out there. Uh, however, in recent years, because of, uh, because of some bad players in the, in the space, uh, the service has taken a, a, a hardcore focus on examining all uh, captives and micro captives that are out there uh, in, in this space. So the, the good planning that we've done has been smeared by a lot of the bad players that have gotten involved or people that have really taken this strategy to the, to the limits. So you have uh, excessive reporting in the area. So you have to report what you're doing to the IRS with a captive. So you're almost certainly buying into an audit when you do that. And also when you think about the the uh, the uh, economics of a captive, it's just not that good. Okay. This particular strategy, though, 
addresses the economic issues that I've had with captives for years, and I'll explain that in a second, okay? So however, it's important to note again, this is not captive insurance. What we're talking about here with enterprise risk coverage is commercial-based insurance, okay? And it's very important to choose the insurance company and how they structure this commercial-based insurance and where that commercial insurance company is located, because you have a bunch of choices around the globe to get this type of insurance. So that's very important too from an income tax planning strategy. Now on, on this particular strategy, you don't want to go to a place like Lloyd's of London uh, or, or State Farm Insurance, or they, they will underwrite this type of insurance for, uh, for, for commercial business. You'll find it to be exceedingly expensive. And once you pay a premium, just like any other insurance policy, if you don't make a claim on that policy at the end of the year, okay, you're, you're going to say goodbye to that, that entire premium, and it's going to go to the insurance company as the insurance company's profit, okay? Now, again, a lot to cover here. This is a 30,000 foot vantage point. But, you know, first question is what is enterprise risk insurance? And there's literally over 35 types of risks you can cover, but you may have a, uh, you know, an, an internet based business, a business that does e commerce. You may have, uh, uh, you know, all sorts of uh, 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 businesses that do, uh, that do, uh, you know, a whole bunch of things with brick and mortar. So I, I, just about every business we can think of. Um, has a uh, has a need for this, uh, you know, the potential of losing a particular key client that would reduce your revenue because that client goes out of business or whatever. Uh, uh, you, you may have uh, regulatory change risk that would impede your business factor, your, your ability to do business. Uh, you may have data breach, uh, you know, where you, you remember Target recently, in recent years, and a lot of other uh, credit card companies, their, their data has been breached. A lot of healthcare institutions, their data has been breached. Uh, and and that, that, that creates all sorts of liability and other issues that you have to consider. So yeah, you have literally uh, uh, over 35 different types of insurance and that's growing on an annual basis. There's always more risk to insure um, that many business enterprises should be insuring if you thought about it, but oftentimes don't insure um, and uh, they don't insure it because the cost, you know, it's not cost effective doing the insurance is very expensive. So this type of insurance coverage and in, from this particular vantage point <coughs> tries to make that insurance coverage more affordable and also give you some, some quality income tax benefits as well. Okay, so again, important to focus on this is commercial-based insurance. Okay, it's not subject to the reporting requirements of the scrutiny that you'll see with captive insurance nor the restrictions uh, on ownership that you find with captive insurance. So you're not subject to the PATH Act restrictions and the economics are very different too. With micro captives, for instance, you're limited to an annual premium, assuming, assuming you can justify it because you have, to, you have to justify your premium. You can't just pick it out of the year saying, oh, I wanna make a $5 million premium into this a year. You, you, you go to the insurance company, the insurance company brings in its actuary, you check the boxes in designing your plan and the actuary writes up what the insurance Covered your what your need your insurance need is from an economic perspective does an economic analysis and then designs the policy. So being a the whether you're using a captive you're supposed to be doing this whether you're using a captive or whether you're using enterprise risk insurance coverage uh, in a from a commercial insurance company you're 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 going you're going to have that same analysis come back and you know if the 
Um, if the uh, actuary says your premium is $500,000, it doesn't matter whether you want to make a $5 million premium, you're not going to be able to justify that. And the insurance company should not be underwriting. It doesn't matter what insurance company you're dealing with, a captive or, 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 your, uh, or, or a commercial carrier. So that's very important to understand. However, if the um, actuary comes back and says you can do a $5 million premium payment, well, if you're using a micro captive, just from a, a pure economics perspective, the, the law doesn't allow you to go above $2.4 million. You're stuck with that. That That is a cap on the amount of insurance coverage. On the other hand, with um, with commercial enterprise risk coverage, you can, you know, I've had clients that have made $15, $20 million premium payments in a year because we can justify that level of insurance based on their revenue, based on the the uh, the profits of the company, <clears throat> based on the types of business that that they're doing. So that's very important to understand as well. So the economics differ there from a captive right away. Second, okay, when you make that, um, this is where the major benefit is from a from a from a tax planning perspective. Commercial enterprise risk insurance carriers that we use are designed more like a insurance company that offered a life insurance company, which you can do from, a, from, from this particular vantage point as well, are they've designed themselves with what we call protective cells. So they have a, um, a, a, a look to them that's very much like you'd find with a variable life insurance uh, company that's offering variable policies or cash value policies. You have the risk pool and then you have your protected cell with, with the cash value going in. So let's say in my example, to use, um, to use, um, uh, to use my, uh, uh, to use round numbers that you have a million dollar premium going into a commercial uh, enterprise risk insurance carrier in that coverage. And again, some of these will, will, will vary between carriers, but in that coverage, you make the million dollar premium payment. You'll have a 40% risk pool. So $400,000 of your premium payment will be allocated to the risk pool where it'll sit there for the year of the, because these are one-year contracts and the remaining 600,000 will go into your own, um, your, your, your own protected cell. That, that, that belongs in, in, in simple terms to your company. It's inside that protected cell, but you get a 162 ordinary and necessary business expense deduction for the full million dollar premium payment. Okay. Once it's in that protected cell, if you're dealing with the right insurance company, you can use your own bank, your own financial advisory firm, and and um, an account can be set up there. And that amount that's sitting, that $600,000 can begin to be uh, invested into marketable securities and sometimes other things, depending on how the size of the, uh, the account and the reserves that are, that are necessary. If there's ever a claim on your policy, part of that claim would be paid out of your your protected cell and the other part would be paid out of the risk pool because you need in order to have real insurance you need a risk pool there has to be you have to have what the concept we call shared risk now that risk pool remains out there for a year once the year passes and the premium then becomes earned that remaining four hundred thousand dollars is set aside okay two months after that um that premium becomes earned so we're 12 months out and now we're 14 months out the insurance company, the commercial insurance company will now take that $400,000 out of the risk pool, less its annual fees, okay, which will vary. And then it will put the remainder of that amount, almost $400,000 into your protected cell. And the process started again 
in month 12, where you made another, let's say a million dollar premium payment. Now what's critical and unlike a captive is inside that protective cell, if you do this type of insurance in the right jurisdiction, you're going to get essentially tax-free buildup or no more than a 4% tax on the income earned, okay? But most, let's just say it, it's gonna take a while before you ever get to the 4% tax, but you're probably gonna, you're probably gonna earn and you're gonna have, a, it's gonna be subject to a 0% tax on the amount, um, uh, on the amount being generated inside of that insurance. So you get a 162 ordinary and necessary business expense deduction going in. You get tax-free buildup in your protective cell until the time that you end up taking it out. Now, the insurance, unlike a captive, where if you stop paying insurance premiums, you're going to lose your ability to qualify as a an insurance company after a few years. It's going to lose its insurance license, and then it's going to have a deemed liquidation sometime over the next several years after. We don't can't tell you when that happens, which, which is the unfortunate thing about dealing with captives. And then you'll have to pay tax on it. In this particular situation, if you stop paying insurance premiums, you had $10 million in your cell, the insurance company is not going to pick, kick you out. They're going to charge you an annual fee to rent the cell, which is not inappropriate, but you're going to continue to get that tax-free buildup. And then when you do exercise your rights to remove assets from that protective cell, which you can at any time, and when you do exercise that, that right and you pull it out, you're going to pay tax right now at capital gains rates. So in theory, you know, also you control the timing, which is exceptional when you're doing planning in this area. So when, you know, if you live in California and then you move to Florida, you're going to completely eliminate the state income tax on that amount you pull out because California can't tax it at that time because you're no longer resident there. You're going to pay tax on what would have been taxed to you right now at ordinary rates, that's 37% at the federal level. And you will only pay tax at capital gains rates when you pull that money out. So you've already split, you, you, you've already reduced the tax liability greatly anyway. And that's on all of the income that's earned along the way. With a captive, it's important to point out that the income inside the captive is taxed at C corporation uh, rates after, you know, on, on the earned income on the capital inside the captive. <clears throat> so if it's, Taxed to 35%, you know, that, that's what the corporate rates are. That's what you pay if it's taxed to 21%, which it is right now, that, that's what you pay now. So I kind of like 0% tax over uh, over uh, over 21% or 35% or whatever the corporate rate may be at a particular time. So you control that timing. Now, what I will tell you too, is in certain situations, if we have a, an exceptionally high earning family or a family office that has exceptional amounts of active income and businesses that they're in, I can actually link your ownership in that, in your enter, commercial enterprise risk coverage into an IDF, an insurance dedicated fund inside of a private placement uh, life insurance contract. So then if and when you ever exercise, or you, not you, but the, the manager of the IDF exercises the right to withdraw funds from the enterprise risk coverage, there's never any tax on that, on those funds being pulled out. And then, as you know, there are different ways of accessing those funds from the, um, from the private placement life insurance policy without ever paying tax as well. So that's a long-winded explanation of, what, of one particular planning strategy that I happen to find fascinating and very flexible and can be owned by an asset protection trust, can be owned by a you know, domestic or foreign, can be owned by a dynasty trust, can be owned by an LLC. So there's all sorts of planning opportunities there. We are going to take a brief break from our episode for a word from one of our sponsors, Carson Private Client. 
Wealth planning focuses on liquidity management and charges you a fee based on a percentage of your assets. But entrepreneurs typically invest in their business, resulting in light liquidity. That requires a unique strategy. At Carson Private Client, we provide a proactive and holistic strategy for building and protecting your wealth. Our mission is to alleviate the stresses and the burdens of coordinating all of those financial strategies. Carson Private Client will work with your current team of advisors to customize a strategy that manages all aspects of your life and wealth, giving you back the time to focus on what matters most. Complex needs require sophisticated solutions. Reach out to our office at 402-779-8989 to schedule your consultation. Investment advisory services offered through CWM LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor. Okay, let's continue our episode. So I have to tell you, Jonathan, as you were talking through that, I was writing down the questions I was going to ask, and then you did answer all of them. So that was awesome. You saved me like a lot of voice today since it's cold here and it's really dry. So that I love that. I particularly appreciated the excellent distinction from the captive because when I actually had called you on a client issue and you threw that idea at me. That was, of course, the first thing on my mind. How does that differ from the captive insurance, which we all know is getting targeted by the IRS big time? So are there any other strategies that you want to mention? Yeah, well, given our time constraints, because I, I know you know we're, we're, uh, we're limited to 30 minutes, uh, but I'd like to concentrate on two more strategies that I think your listeners will be highly interested in. Uh, both of which work very well, again, with asset protection planning. Uh, the first strategy that I'd like them to consider um, is uh, investment in commercial solar projects to generate tax credits and tax deductions through depreciation. I, I really love this area. Um, you know, it, it, it's, um, it, it's uh, an area that if you follow the rules very closely, you're careful with it. It's closer to the black and white uh, that I just described the one area. Uh, it, it really is that good. If you deal with the right um, with the right vendors out there, there's a lot of flexibility to address all of the other issues. Uh, I just mentioned a second ago um, when we when we first got started, and maybe 20 minutes ago, right? But um, excuse me. Um, but um, you know, the, the, this is something that can be used uh, uh, in conjunction with with high income earners. Uh, or even sometimes even even lower uh, people that are uh, the wealthier on the lower end of the spectrum, such as you and me, where you know we 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 earn our income predominant amount of income from our our legal practices. Um, but again, it just depends on the it just depends on the vendor that you're dealing with. So, for instance, I have solar light poles where people can get into an investment uh, and and buy light poles for you know as little as two hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year. Uh, you know, up to four or five million dollars, and then I have vendors that will allow you to get into um, a commercial plan, you know, credit at uh, um, commercial solar project at uh, let's say a minimum of five million dollars, all the way up to one hundred and fifty million dollars. And again, a lot of this is based on what's available in the industry. There's only so many projects available each year. This particular strategy, and you may not have heard of it, and it may be new to a lot of people because it really became popular for individuals, not for institutions. Institutions loved it before that, but changes in the 2017 Tax Act really made it 
uh, something significant, a significant opportunity for individuals. Um, so that that's when we really started the focus. And a lot of these solar companies switched from selling these institutionally uh, because the banks could no longer use them or, or, or the different types of financial firms that were buying them because the tax laws changed for them as well. And, and But individuals, again, now found found this highly effective. The other thing I really like about this is this is a green concept, so it doesn't matter who's in um, who's in power, whether it's Republicans. This actually came from the Republican side, or whether it's Democrats. Uh, no one's likely to touch it. They're likely to make this better. Uh, oil and gas right now um, receives preferred treatment. You know, this is something that you know it's only going to get better and better as we go along. So, you know, so what does this do for you? So again, just to make it easy, um, you know, let's focus on someone making a million dollar investment and you have, um, let's say you have $5 million of income and it's all active income from your business. This is not the greatest strategy to use if we're using W2 income. We're very limited with that. So I'm focusing on businesses that have, um, that have active income. That's that's the best thing to look at because you're 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 uh, addressing uh, income tax rates at 37% and above with when you consider state income tax and also uh, potentially capital gains, but not in a state like Florida or Nevada or Texas where you only have uh, federal capital gains tax because there you know the the benefits are not as good. Although you know people have used these and looked at them, the economics still work. But in a state like California or a state like New York, where you're still paying tax, or a lot of states where you're still paying tax at a fairly high rate, you're into the 30s and, and above, when even when you have a large capital gains rate combined with your federal income tax rate, of course. So basically, you take your million dollars, you find a solar investment, you want to have a good solar investment. Okay, there's a lot of good ones out there. The counterparties are usually schools, governmental entities, state, federal government, uh, local government governmental entities, like a water district or something like that, where you know they're going to pay on, on it every year. They're buying the electricity from you. Um, you you buy into a solar panel project. Uh, you put your million dollars in. And then the question is, what do you get for that million dollars? Well, if you're dealing with the right type of, of, um, of uh, uh, vendor, and again, you deal with the right types of vendors, you're typically going to get a check every year. So let's say on that million dollars, you're going to get on the low end, 4%, maybe 5%, 6%, depending upon, you know, look at this a bond, so to say, and a fixed income instrument, maybe 6%, depending on how much you're putting in. You know, again, I have clients that have bought $100 million or more of this in a particular year, but you put in, you, you put in your million dollar investment and every year you're going to get a check in your mailbox for $40,000. Let's say it's just saying the low end or $50,000 return. So we know that's coming in. Okay. What are the tax benefits? Well, first off right now, well, you can find some projects with a grandfather 30% tax credit. You're going to get a, at least a 26% federal income tax credit. Okay. Let's say it's 30% to round it up. So $300,000 credit in our example, that's probably going to go back to 300 to 30%, by the way, if not higher, <clears throat> for various reasons, we're seeing that you know being talked about a lot on Capitol Hill now because this is again a very popular type of tax benefit. So you get your three hundred thousand dollars. Now you can take that three hundred thousand dollar tax tax credit, and you can apply it to last year's income. So this year is twenty twenty two. You can apply it to last year's twenty twenty one if you want, or you can apply it against this year's active income. It's completely up to the client. You can claim a refund, and the IRS will send you the check, or you can 
reduce your tax liability this year or reduce your withholding tax liability for that matter on the income that we're taking down here. So there you got $300,000 gone. Now you're redu you have to reduce your basis. And again, this is a 30,000 foot vantage point. You have to reduce your basis on that million dollars you just put in into the, into the, into the solar project, not by $300,000, my example, but only by 150,000. So you still have $850,000 of basis in your, in your solar project after you take your tax credit. So it's not a one-to-one -one write off. You're getting a little bit higher there. Now you got this thing called bonus depreciation. So you can take that remaining 85%. The numbers don't work out exactly like this. So you always have someone that'll jump in and say, hey, you know, you did you think about this or think about that? When we go into more detail, we're talking at this on a you know on a one-to-one -one level, of course we'll go into more detail. But here you're going to take that remaining $850,000, you're going to use it to offset the remaining amount of your income. Now, Mary, you're a tax lawyer too, so you understand that a credit is much more valuable to you in the tax planning world than a than, than depreciation, but depreciation isn't bad, okay? You're going to take down the rest of your income from that, okay? And then you're going to, uh, you're, at, at the end of the day, you will pay a little bit of income tax on that million dollars. You're still coming out of pocket a little bit, but now you have an asset, okay? And that asset for the next 26 years at least is going to be paying you a check. It's going to give you a return of $50,000 in my example in your mailbox every year, okay? That's going to be taxable income for you, by the way. But if you just paid Uncle Sam, all you're going to get on that is you're going to get the use of highways. You're going to get the use of uh, national defense, which we really like to have right now. It's a little more uh, palatable to have national defense right now. <clears throat> and you're going to get the, uh, you're going to get the ability to listen to Mr. Biden um, uh, spew out incoherent sentences every now and then. So, and, and that, that's your return on that. So it's the choices here are make the investment and you have an asset in hand, which remains on your balance sheet. And oh, by the way, after you're in that investment, about 90 days, maybe 120 days, depending upon the vendor, you can borrow up to 65% of your capital in at, mar at prevailing market rates. So you'll now have, you know, the ability to take out $650,000 of that million dollars at a very favorable rate, because it's backed up, it's, it's collateralized by your investment in, and you can use that for whatever you want. So now you have now you have additional capital at your disposal. You don't have to use it. I tell people you just look at this as a bond and collect your bond payment. You're going to come out way ahead when we talk about the economics here. The other thing um, that's important, and, and again, there's a lot of little things here that we tell you along the way. So you know, not covering every little aspect of what's going on here. But but the other thing we, we need to focus on here with this is the fact that you have to have 100 hours. And this, this is something that I think is going to go away too because you don't have it in the oil and gas space, but you have to have 100 hours of active participation. Um, uh, not not 600 hours like you do in real estate in order to take the write-off or to, to benefit from the entire write-off. Now, it's that, that's pretty easy to get to. I think the reason um, why some people are hesitant to say, well, how am I going to do that? Well, one, we give you three or four projects to look at. If you go look at three or four projects, you know, you spend a weekend going out to California or someplace in the Sun Belt, you're going to, you're going to get 45, 50 hours or more looking at those projects in different places. And then we have you know, the, the, the various vendors we use and, and certain accounting firms have biweekly investor conference calls. They have YouTube videos on investing in this space. So it's very easy to get to that hundred hours of active time. 
So anyway, that, that gives you a little bit of background on, um, on that strategy. Mary, I know we're running out of time, but let me just make a couple of comments uh, that maybe I can close with on, uh, on private placement life insurance. Would that be okay? That'd be great. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, again, this is another area that I'm really excited about and private placement life insurance it, inside of an insurance contact, very similar to what I talked about before earlier or alluded to is the fact that you get what's called tax-free growth inside of an insurance contract. So your, um, your, uh, your assets, as long as you have, as long as you have an insurance contract, the assets that are growing inside of a, a, a portfolio, inside of a private placement life insurance contract, grow on a tax-free basis. Now, you, you know, if you put $100 in and it grows to $1,000, you'll be able to, um, to take out that, thousand, that part of that $1,000. At least you got to leave the policy in force, but you can uh, tax-free. And the way you do that is you draw down on your basis in the policy. So that $100 that I had in there that I put in, I grew to a thousand dollars. That's part of my basis in the policy. So I can withdraw up to my basis in the policy. There's no tax on that withdrawal. I can then withdraw another portion of that thousand dollars, not even 100 to $900 and just borrow it out of the policy and then pay it back later or pay, you know, or never pay it back. But it will be, um, you know, that, that borrowing is also a tax free event as well. Okay. So these policies become very flexible. Private placement life insurance is a private label contract, a souped up variable contract that enables you to do, you know, invest in all sorts of hedge funds and, you know, and, and, and private equity funds and, and um, you know, and venture funds that you would not otherwise be able to invest in, in, um, in traditional life insurance contracts. It allows you to have the insurance company open an account at your favorite financial advisor uh, that you're using. And so you, you know, you can, you can have continuity of asset management rather than not knowing you know, the advisors behind the funds that you choose in a traditional variable life insurance contract. But the other thing that we're doing here right now is very creative planning techniques with private placement life insurance. So for instance, we're, um, we're using these types of policies, you know, and again, very strict design rules with private placement life insurance. So this is even a 40 or 50,000 uh, foot vantage point. But when people go to sell their, their companies, so let's say they, they, they create a company, they have almost a zero basis in it. Uh, they got to me when it was worth $50 million and all of a sudden they're selling it for $500 million if we planned early enough in that process. So they got to me, I can wipe out the gain on let's say uh, the next 440 or $430 million of income, capital gain income, that's being realized when that company is sold. If we use a private placement life insurance policy the right way, um, I can get some of the active income of a business inside of a policy as well through certain planning techniques that we have to eliminate the tax liability on that. And again, you have to be very careful the way you do this. There's what we call investor control rules that we have to plan around. There's corridor rules because you have to have, you know, a, a certain amount of life insurance and you can't always attain that on an individual. For, you know, for instance, most individuals are limited to about 125, $150 million of life insurance, even on, even on the wealthiest individuals, you know, out there like Bill Gates, um, because it's just only so much insurance capacity. Well, we have ways that we've designed over the years to address those corridor rules. And then you have, you know, with investor control rules, 
Uh, you, you, you have diversification rules inside the policies and stuff like that. So it's very important you deal with quality carriers that understand, you know, the rules that uh, that are that applicable to life insurance policies and how they're administered to make sure that you stay within those rules because you don't want something to fail because um, because the life insurance policy didn't qualify as life insurance. So Mary, I, you know, I, I hope that uh, gives your listeners a lot to think about, your viewers a lot to think about here. Uh, I know that was a lot to throw at people, but uh, and, and we crunched it into a, a little over 30 minutes. Hopefully that uh, that works well for you, huh? Thanks, Jonathan. That actually gives me a lot to think about as well. So I really appreciate your participating on the podcast today. Thank you. My pleasure. Well, that's all for now. I want to thank our sponsors, Interactive Legal and Carson Wealth. Thanks for listening to today's episode and stay tuned for our weekly releases. Vandenack Weaver Trulson Legal Visionaries is made available by the firm and its attorneys for educational purposes and to provide general information, not to provide specific legal advice. Use of the Vandenack Weaver Trulson Legal Visionaries podcast does not create an attorney-client relationship between you and the firm or any of its attorneys. The Vandenack Weaver Trulson Legal Visionaries podcast should not be used as a substitute for competent legal advice, and you should contact an attorney in your state about any legal needs or questions you may have. A Huda Media Production.